Thank you, Mary. It's, it's a wonderful opportunity for me to speak with you this morning. I was very pleased that Amanda and Mary uh, issued the invitation. And I just want to share with you in the meditation when Mary asked you, what is your favorite thing about Wes? I just had this overwhelming feeling of love. There just is a real sort of unfettered sense of welcome and love in this congregation that I just, I really love. <laughs> it's really wonderful. <clears throat> so I, I have always been struck by this um, quote up here of Felix Adler. The place where people meet to seek the highest is holy ground. And it's important that this is a quote by Felix Adler, founder of Ethical Culture, because I didn't know that before, because it was often used as opening words in my UU congregation in St. Paul. And I want to be sure you know that ethical culture, its wisdom, and its founder are known outside of ethical culture, notably among Unitarian Universalists. But there are other people, too. <laughs> I would like to say again what I once said here in this room when the idea of co-affiliation with the UUA was being discussed. I said, you, ethical culture, have something very important to teach us, Unitarian Universalists. The specific language around ethics, eliciting the best from ourselves and others, is very helpful and clear. That is your focus. Much as Unitarian Universalism is a non-creedal movement, UUs spend a lot of time talking about their individual theologies. We too believe in deed over creed, but sometimes the deeds can get secondary attention as we sort out our individual religious beliefs. Last week, Amanda did a beautiful job giving an overview of 5,000 years of Western theology. <laughs> Dazzling. Today, I would like to narrow that down a bit and give you 5,000 years of history about the concept of covenant, understood as a sacred promise. To put it in a contemporary context first, I will share this story. A UU minister, Tom Belote, was has written of his experience demonstrating in Kansas City in favor of comprehensive sexuality education for high school students. At the protest were two young women, amateur reporters for a fundamentalist Christian publication. When they heard there was a minister among the demonstrators, they headed straight for Tom, wanting to know more about him. He told, him, he told them that he was a Unitarian Universalist, and, of course, they wanted to know more about that. What do you use believe, they asked, the expected and sometimes dreaded question. They asked what you use believe about God and the Bible and other similar creedal questions. Again and again, Tom answered them by saying that we are not a creedal faith. We are a covenantal faith. We share a covenant of how we try to be together, not a creed of what we, will, we all must believe together. Eventually, they seemed to grasp the concept and learn something new. So where did this idea of covenant come from? 
the idea of promises in religious community about how we treat each other versus what we believe. Going way back before the Hebrew Bible was written down, even before a covenant became associated with a religious context, the Hebrew word berit was a term used for treaties and contracts, much as we use this word covenant in secular contexts today. As the oral tradition evolved into a holy book, stories of covenants between Yahweh and his people solidified the nature of that relationship, the relationship between the people and their God. There was a long line of patriarchs, including Noah, Abraham, and David, with whom God made sacred promises or covenants, such that the people would flourish if they obeyed God's laws. Obedience would bring blessings. Disobedience would bring curses. The covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai in the form of the Ten Commandments brought explicit instructions about the way people should treat one another. These are essentially God's laws with the way people get along with one another becoming more of a factor in the life of the community, at least as recorded in the Torah. The Jewish commandments boil down to the golden rule. Treat others as you would have them treat you. This is Torah. All else is commentary. Or the ethical instructions of the prophets, my favorite being Micah. What does the Lord require? That you do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Do justice and love mercy. Sounds like ethical culture to me. Walk humbly with your God. Check last week's platform. The word covenant is important in Christianity as well. I'm sensitive to the issues many of you may have with Christianity. For years at Cedar Lane, I heard stories of how people had been hurt and felt excluded by the church. I'm a Unitarian Universalist, not a Christian. But because I was raised a Unitarian Universalist without any Christian baggage, I've been lucky to see and to know the many positive aspects of the Christian story and the institutions that also support an ethic of justice and mercy. For Christians, the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ was understood as the new covenant. The old covenant was the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. The new covenant only required belief in the saving power of Jesus with the assumption that a lifestyle of justice and mercy was part of that blessing. So these are the important theological roots of the word covenant. Now, I want to get into the exciting story about the Protestant Reformation and its more radical groups. I want to explain how the Congregation of the Free Covenant came to be. My thesis is that ethical societies and UU congregations are heirs to that tradition. Now, so, going back, I love history. <laughs> so bear with me if it's not your favorite thing. A great deal of drama evolved from the invention of the printing, pre printing press in Europe. You're probably aware of that. 
In the 1500s, people were suddenly able to read the Bible for themselves. It wasn't being, you know, just uh, within the power and purview of uh, the authorities and the priests. The printing press influenced Europe in the same explosive way that the Internet is impacting the world today. Even though much of the population was illiterate, enough people began reading the Bible in their own languages that there was a collective cry of, hey, that isn't what it says. <laughs> that could mean something completely different. The people who were later called Unitarians said, hey, there's nothing in here about the Trinity. The quest for freedom of religion and conscience was born in the splinter groups that started breaking away from the established church. The Reformation had started with Martin Luther and then John Calvin, both of whom claimed large swaths of Christianity with new doctrines. From Luther, we got the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith, and from Calvin, the doctrine of predestination. But there continued to be radical groups who stuck to the idea that doctrine cannot be established once and for all. Faith must be an evolving, living thing. Many of the radical Reformation groups solidified around particular tenets, such as the need for adult baptism among the Baptists. But others, including our forebears, believed that exclusion on the basis of honesty had no place in religious life. The story of the covenanted, creedless congregation is a very American story. The early history of this country included the migration of religiously oppressed minorities to these shores. There's a very good book. I would call it a great book, but there's a very good book by a UU scholar and minister, someone I'm pleased to say I know, Alice Blair Wesley, titled Myths of Time and History. In it, she analyzes several cultural myths that illustrate and underlie liberal religion in North America. Alice says a myth is a story freighted with meaning for a particular cultural group. I love that line, a story freighted with meaning. The first, the first story she unpacks in her book is the story of Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. Dorothy goes on the heroine's journey of discovery, accompanied by friends, facing dangers as she grows and learns. Our free congregations are made up of Dorothy's. That must be why we've recently had a Wizard of Oz sing-along here. <laughs> Another myth that Alice recounts is that of the Mayflower. She uses the story of the Pilgrims of Plymouth Rock to illustrate the development of the Covenantal Free Congregation. Alice says, and I think she is right, that the pilgrims have gotten a bad rap lately. Some of their snobbier descendants have not helped. They're often confused with the more extreme Puritans. The extreme Puritans who migrated later were Calvinists who looked for signs of who is saved and who is not. But other milder Puritans, such as the pilgrims who settled at Plymouth Rock, befriended the Indians, and held the first Thanksgiving. 
these original pilgrims were daring heroes of religious freedom. Now, I'd like to set the scene for you uh, of what it was like in England in the late 1500s as all this ferment was going on and the stew out of which the pilgrims emerged. This is a scene that was witnessed by a Jesuit priest, William Weston, from his prison cell. Everybody was going to jail back then for their religious beliefs. He was watching an outdoor gathering of Puritans, Puritans whom I gather were actually imprisoned also for their beliefs. He described the crowd in the yard this way. Each of them had his own Bible and sedulously turned the pages and looked up the texts cited by the preachers, discussing the passages among themselves to see whether they had quoted them to the point and accurately and in harmony with their tenets. Also, they would start arguing among themselves about the meaning of the passages from the scriptures. Men, women, boys, girls, rustics, laborers, and idiots. More often than not, it ended in violence and fisticuffs. And these people were already in prison. Two things really strike me about this account. First, the freedom of thought and discourse the people seem to be assuming, that they had a right to argue about this. And second, alas, the rigidness about who was right. Isn't that such a plague in human history? That rigidness about who is right. Now, no, these were not the pilgrims, but this is the environment they were in. The pilgrims were a, a, a group of gentler folks. It was a gentle and brilliant Church of England minister, John Robinson, who first articulated what one would call the covenanted free church. He founded the group who became the pilgrims, though he did not accompany them to the new world. He had gradually come to believe that coercion had no place in religion. By 1607, he had had his parish taken away and was preaching illegally. These are his words. The Lord's people is of a willing sort. Therefore, they need no outside authority. The church should be entered into freely, its work supported financially by its own members, its doctrines and practices worked out by members without compulsion or coercion of any kind, under the guidance of spirit as the local members should be persuaded to follow it. Alice Wesley goes on, Robinson's vision of the church was of many Dorothys, of people who, having become individuals capable of courageous partnership, should now freely bind themselves into a group of promised partners in further adventures of learning and service, without any compulsion or coercion, but only as they should be persuaded through study and argument and prayer together. I have to say the beauty of this ideal and the preciousness of it are really moving to me. A group of Robinson's followers resettled in Holland and then made arrangements to set out for the American continent in 1620, suffering many hardships in order to live their free religious life. These were the pilgrims, and Unitarians are the direct religious descendants of this group. We still have a church at Plymouth Rock. The Universalists have a slightly different but similar story. Of course, there is a darker version of any real history. 
The value of a guiding story or myth is in lifting up eternal prized values. This ideal of the covenantal model of religious life is prized among us. It is not easy to live in community. It is a soul challenge. Living authentically is like bobbing in a stream. I imagine all the members of a free congregation like a group of people in inner tubes, floating and trying to stay together. By holding hands, they bob down the river, welcoming new people as they go. A free congregation is a living organism. Any group of equal people with opinions has its work cut out for it so as not to resort to fisticuffs. The skills of democracy, democracy in action, are needed. What distinguishes a religious group, I think, is the, standing, the conscious understanding of being on holy ground, or in a holy river, if you will. We are in process, and every day we begin again in love. I would say the difference between a secular and a religious community has mainly to do with the major locus from which we live. In religious community, we are freer to bring our whole selves and live explicitly from the heart. Ethical culture and Unitarian Universalism are the purest examples of this free, non-creedal, congregational model that I know of with Reformed Jews and the United Church of Christ being similar but more involved in traditional practices. And there certainly may be others I'm unaware of. Besides being non-creedal, these congregations also have what is known as congregational polity, in which the congregation has ultimate authority over what actions it takes and only needs to listen politely to denominational leaders. If denominational leaders are democratically elected, one hopes they deserve to be listened to. A point I am not addressing here is the role of the professional leader or minister in such a congregation. This is an important topic to consider at another time. As partner to your current board chair, I am proud to support Perry's dedication to this free congregation. I am interested in the new approach to governance the board is trying this year Consent governance. Have you heard about this? This is a more demanding standard in decision-making than reaching consensus. With consent governance, all reasoned paramount objectives, object, objections, <laughs> reasoned paramount objections to any proposal are on the table to be processed, must be processed. I'd call this uber-democracy. And we all know the drawbacks of regular democracy. It takes time and patience, but it is worth it. It is holy work on holy ground. I congratulate your leaders for taking on this new form of process. This is the kind of effort required for effectively living in authentic community. It is an art and a labor of love. What are the promises we make here on holy ground? These are our covenants, made in a context that transcends the everyday. These are more than contracts, more than agreements. They are promises of the heart. Here we make wedding vows and promise to care for children. 
Here we celebrate the joys and sorrows of congregational life. Even in a memorial service, we are promising to honor the memory of those we have lost. Next week, you will formally install Mary Herman as one of your leaders in a ritual of promises made and kept. The words you say in your candle lighting constitute a spoken covenant for this Sunday morning time. Covenants are promises of the heart. I was a big Dionne Warwick fan when I was a teenager, and I thank you, Leonard and Nicole, for uh, performing that uh, song, Promises, Promises. When I was thinking about this platform, that song came right to mind for me. And since then, I've learned that this was a song from a musical by Burt Bacharach, and there's even a revival on Broadway. What the song says to me is that there are promises and then there are promises. There are empty promises. Promises that are essentially lies, such as the ones heard every day in commercials. There are promises that are merely contracts. Lovers break promises and walk away, and this is the destructive kind of promise that Dion is singing about at first. But then there are the other promises. The authentic promises of the heart the promises we come to with our whole selves, vulnerable, open, and trusting. These are the promises that lead to joy and hope and love. May the promises made on this holy ground continue to lead to joy and hope and love now and in the years to come. Thank you.